Hello, I'm Caitlin Kalina, a public relations major at SMU. Welcome to Hello Hilltop. Today, I'm interviewing one of my favorite professors at SMU, John Bryant. He has been teaching analysis of music production since 2012 and music production practices since 2018. Originally from Virginia, Professor Bryant has been drumming for most of his life. Bryant went to New York to play and perform alongside artists and producers like Paul Winter Consort, Paul Stuckey, and Phil Ramone. He later moved to Los Angeles to become part of Ray Charles's band and was able to tour North America and Europe for two years. He also appeared in TV shows and contributed to three of Ray Charles's albums. When he came back to Dallas, he formed and led a group called Firework, and he also composed three works for the Dallas Black Dance Theater. He is a founding member of The Drum, and he has done many other impressive things throughout his career. Where in Virginia did you grow up, and what was it like? Well, I grew up in a very small town in southern Virginia, um, near the North Carolina border. The, the town's called Martinsville. So it was, it, was, uh, it was a small town upbringing. Everybody knew each other, and, the, uh, you know, my band director and my music teachers and, and uh, community were all really close-knit and were, you know, they were, they were great. I had a lot of friends and a lot of support because it was a small town that was supportive. When did you learn how to drum and why did you pick percussion? Well, I uh, had always loved music from the time I was just, you know, five, six years old. Um, and I'm at the age where the Beatles were it. The Beatles were the big impact, you know. I was in high school and the Beatles came out and everybody went crazy over them and started growing their hair long and wanting to be in a band. And I was right in the middle of all of that. So I, uh, some of my buddies decided we're gonna put a band together. And uh, I really liked Ringo playing the drums, you know, and I thought the drums seemed pretty cool because he was up on this high pedestal up above everybody else. And, you know, it was just exciting. So we all went down to the local music store, my, me and my, my partners and I, and I took drum lessons and two of the other guys took guitar lessons and a, a keyboard player. And that's how it started. Why did you choose to pursue a degree in music? And did they help you prepare for a career or was it more technical skills on improving your skills? Well, I um, became aware, I was living in Virginia, but uh, my band director brought North Texas State University to my attention at the time. It was called that. Now it's University of North Texas in Denton. But they had maybe the best jazz group in the nation. And it was just caught my ear and my heart. And I thought, that's where I want to go. And there was a special drummer that played in that band named Ed Stoff, who was just fabulous and I thought I want to go there and study with him and play with that band. That was my goal. I didn't really have a goal of I'm going to go there and get a degree and do something. My goal was to go to North Texas State and take lessons from these great drummers that were there and hopefully get in that one o'clock lab band which was the the top jazz band in the in the nation and um, collegiate. So that's what I did. So I went straight out of high school from Virginia, straight to Texas 
It was a shock because I was used to having, you know, mountains around me and snowing in the winter. And then I came here and it's all flat and it doesn't really snow here. And so it was a shock. But I acclimated and I I have to say that I loved all of my experiences in college. I I just had a a great time the whole time I was there. And and again, it was more support. It was more great people who were who I was learning from. So my experience in college was just, it was fabulous. I, I, I can't think of anything that was bad about it in that I, I achieved my goal. I, I did play in the one o'clock lab band um, my second year of college as a sophomore and as a junior. And then my senior year, um, I started pursuing other things, but mm-hmm. that's, that was that. So um, was it the network that you had made in college that led you to going to New York to perform with the Paul Winter Consort? Yes, it was, it was, the network is the most important thing. I mean, you go there, you meet teachers, and even more importantly, you meet your other students. When they leave school, they're the ones that are gonna open doors for you, and they're gonna tell you what's going on. You're gonna learn how to go from college out into the professional world a lot through the students, because everyone has something on, on their mind, how they wanna go there, Where are they going to go? What is it they want to accomplish? And the students are constantly talking about it. You know that. Mm -hmm. And and the professors are there to give information, give encouragement, do whatever they can. But when it comes right down to it, when those students leave school, those are your best connections a lot of the times because they're already going to be out there in in those woods finding finding the treasures. So... um, what happened for me was there was a, a, a touring group named the Paul Winter Consort, and they came to North Texas uh, State University, of North Texas. They gave a concert. A friend of mine who was also a percussionist, we went to the concert. We loved it. We met them. We talked to them. We talked to the leader, Paul Winter. And then about three months later, my friend was offered a, a job to go tour with them. And he went on the road with them. And then about three months after that, he gave me a call and asked me if I wanted to join the group also. And so that's when I decided, made this tough decision that my parents were not happy about <laughs> to leave school, you know, at the end of my senior year before graduating and go on tour. And that's what I did. How did you meet Ray Charles? Well, it's the same thing. Other musicians, connections. I was playing, uh, I was going to school at North Texas and I started going into Dallas and Fort Worth to meet professional musicians, to try and make my way into the professional world. And I met these musicians um, at nightclubs in South Dallas and all over Fort Worth and would sit in and play with these musicians. And one place that I went was a place that a lot of the musicians that played on Ray Charles's band would congregate and play and have jam sessions. So I got to know them through that. And then it was the same thing. One day, Ray Charles was not happy with the drummer he had. And he went to one of these people that I knew, one of my friends that was on the band and said, hey, I want to make a change. I'm looking for a new drummer. Do you know anybody? Do you have a suggestion? And then Ray Charles actually called my phone number and said, look, I've heard about you. I need a new drummer. Can you come to Denver tomorrow and start? 
And I said, yes. Um, what was your favorite memory from touring with the band? Well, that's really, really tough. I have so many favorite memories, so many. Just so many highlights of, of working with a genius like that. Because when you're, when you're in the presence of someone like that, who, of course, they're famous, and that's one kind of a thing. But, you know, the level of his talent was astounding and I, I learned so much and just being you know in that arena with him every night was just crazy and special not not to say that it wasn't work it was it was hard work and there were you know there were tough times with any job that you have to do you know because he was demanding he was just a perfectionist and knew exactly how he wanted things and if you didn't do exactly the way he wanted it it wouldn't be, you know, a nice scenario to be in the middle of. It would be kind of tough. But I have to say probably one of my great memories is um, we were touring Europe and we were in France, in La Havre, France, which is a beautiful little coastal town in France. And it was in the spring and uh, we were playing an outdoor concert for a great crowd. And, and it just was a wonderful, wonderful night. And I played well that night because I really was feeling it. It was a great night. And sure enough, Ray was listening and he called me in his dressing room afterwards and he said, I love the way you played tonight. I'm going to give you a raise. Play like that every night. So, you know, <laughs> that was a special time. Wow. Special time. Who taught you how to produce music? Did you teach yourself? Wow, yeah. At the time that I was getting interested in production, there really were not any music production classes, you know. There was no online. There were no classes taught in colleges. You really had to learn it yourself. So the way you did that was you would find these records, these recordings that you loved, and you would read the credits, who produced this record. And then you would try and find out about that person. And, you know, uh, you, would, you would try and really start to understand what was involved in production. And production is a lot about organization. So, you know, organizing the way you want something to sound in the end is really what production is. But you had to teach yourself. And really, you had to learn from those around you because I would work for other producers who were had been doing it and they knew what they were doing and I would learn from other producers. That's where you, you really get it. And at a certain point, I thought, well, I can do this and I want to do this. I had the privilege of taking both of the courses Professor Bryant teaches at SMU. I was taking Professor Bryant's music production class when COVID-19 hit Dallas last semester. Professor Bryant, how has the music industry changed during the coronavirus pandemic? Yeah, well, it's been, there's just no way around it. It's been a colossal event that has shaken everyone who tries to make a living at music. And the thing about it, about this whole pandemic, the COVID-19 shutdown of live entertainment, it has gone from the top to the bottom. I mean, Taylor Swift, the Eagles, uh, you name it, whoever it is, uh, you know, Drake, any band you name, none of them can function like they did eight months ago. And uh, of course, at the top, everyone is affected because you can't have big crowds and go out and tour. And on the level of uh, like Dallas, 
all of those working musicians have been affected because venues have closed. Bars are closed. Restaurants are pretty much closed. All of the different places, churches, playing in churches for local musicians is a really important, huge venue. We'll call it a venue mm -hmm. because it's a place where you play and are paid to play and perform uh, along with restaurants and bars and local concerts, festivals, you know, the Main Street Festival, the Denton Arts and Jazz Festival, all of these places that musicians play are done, you know, for now. And that means that all of those musicians do not have a job. So this has been earth shattering. And we're into, you know, we're going into the seventh month of this right now, really with no end, end in sight. We're all hoping, but we don't know what's going to happen. And what's scary about it is that so many venues have had to close shop. They're not coming back. The dark side of this, the downside of this is that a lot of places where musicians play will not come back. And the ones that do come back will not have the money to pay that they had before. There's going to be a gradual reopening, hopefully, as a vaccine comes about as the health issues get better, uh, as people are coping with it in a, a better way. But it can't be overstated. I was thinking about it earlier today. The only thing that occurred in the history of popular music in the United States in the 20th century up to now, the only thing you could compare it to would be World War II, mm -hmm. you know, and that was in the 40s. Because in World War II, there was such an effort, a national effort to help the war effort. They actually stopped recording for a few years. The Musicians Union, and uh, because they needed, they needed that vinyl to make materials for the war effort. So World War II, things were disrupted, you know. Yeah. But you could still have crowds and musicians could still go play somewhere, even if it was for troops or wherever. There was still an active live music scene. So now, of course, there was no internet. Of course, now we have internet, we can do some virtual performing, we can do virtual recording, but we cannot go to the physical venues. And when it comes right down to it, the physical venues are the place that the economy for the music industry thrives the most. Recordings do not feed the music industry and nearly as well as live music does. There's no comparison. Now, of course, if you were a big selling artist like a Taylor Swift or a Drake, you're gonna make substantial money with streaming, Spotify and, and all the different sources that you are selling your recorded music. But I would say, you know, 96 or 7% of everyone in the music industry do not make their money that way. They make their money playing live, performing live. So that's all gone. So it's really a tough time. Everyone from the top to the bottom, you know, from the most famous and wealthiest to those that are just barely making a living playing music, we all have the same issue. How are we gonna get back into a public scenario and play again and make start making that money again. How long is it going to take before that happens? And at this point today, no one really knows.
Now everybody's guessing. Yeah, I have been brainstorming myself on how we are going to, like, what's the safest way to reopen concert venues and start booking live performances. And I was mm-hmm. thinking, like, like if we are going to have a live performance in a big venue like American Airlines Center, like, have the performer do two nights or three nights and then have all the ticket holders come on one of those three nights and have them spread out, no general admission, and um, maybe make the ticket holders have proof of negative test results when they yeah. come in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really I, that's the main question. Is like, how are we going to open back up? And I think everything you said is is a great idea. Um, you know, if it's uh, if it's if it's an artist that is a big artist and they're coming to American Airlines, yeah, book three nights, stretch it out over three nights. Now. Here's the thing. Everyone is going to have to be willing to give a little bit because the artist that's used to making, you know, let's just pick a number. The artist that's used to making um, $100,000 in one night now is going to at best look at $100,000 over three nights. So that act is working three times as hard for the same money. But not only them, the venue also, the venue has to pay people that work there, that sell the, you know, the merchandise or the beer or do the, you know, open the facility. It's going to be the same thing. They're going to be taking a hit, too, because the amount of money is going to be spread out because the people are going to be spread out. So you hit the nail on the head with how do we gradually come into this? And I think you're also right that it is imperative that a quick result test is developed. And when that is developed, I think that that's going to make a lot of things possible. But it's got to be a quick result test, you know, like within 15 minutes. And that, that does exist. There are, you know, the Dallas Symphony is easing itself back into it. And the and they do have that test. The members of the Dallas Symphony, when they go in for a rehearsal, every one of them are tested before entering the building, they spit into a cup and they find out in just, you know, minutes what the result is. You know, it's tricky. All results aren't going to be 100%. And I, you know, this is not my field. I don't know. But I do know that people are going to want to have some sort of a feeling of safety Mm -hmm. before they're ready to go out. Uh, A lot of people are. Some people obviously aren't. But but the big crowds and also to get around liabilities. That's another thing. The venues are concerned about liability, you know? So there's a few things to work out there, but but I do think that everyone has to give and allow for this coming back. And because we know, the musicians know that when the restaurant that you used to play at or the bar that you used to play at, whatever it is they were paying you before this happened, it's probably going to be about half of that. And it's understandable because they don't have it. They're trying to build back. Everyone's trying to build back. So there's going to be a period, even when there's a vaccine that's safe and is working and you get the feeling that it's clearing out, that doesn't mean things are going to snap back to normal. It's going to be tough for a while. And But everybody has to share the responsibility and the load of building building it back. I think a real possibility might be now that artists and venues are going to partner 
maybe, like I was saying, there's not enough money for everybody, but maybe artists, musicians, singers, and venues make a deal where they're going to build it back together, but there will be a payoff for both. So you're saying like the artist would be an ambassador of some sort for that venue and could maybe like do some kind of social media contest for the venue and be like, yes, and yes. to win these tickets. And not only an ambassador, but a partner. But a partner. This could be a good thing because there's been, you know, tough relationships between venues and, and artists in the past because a venue might only you know, not pay them enough or only hire them, you know, once every three months or not hire them if they're playing somewhere else that's a competitive place, you know, like between the Granada Theater and the Kessler Theater, there's a no, you know, compete clause in there. Mm -hmm. You can't play both of those venues. They compete. But I think it might be a thing where venues and artists kind of start helping each other out, just the way you said, as an ambassador and as a partner that profits on the other end. That may or may not work. I don't know. But it's just an idea that came to me, you know. Yeah. Yeah. How has music production changed during the coronavirus pandemic? What is one good thing that has come out of this? I would say one good thing that has happened out of this is that musicians have sharpened their skills in terms of home recording and virtual recording, virtual performing. Everybody has sharpened their skills because they're home and they're forced to do it. And that's a good thing. We always have to look for the good stuff out of the bad stuff. And that is absolutely a good thing. And yes, it is gonna introduce, I think, a different era um, of, of, uh, this idea that virtual performances are acceptable and they can be uh, they can be good. You know, um, of course, everything is flooded right now. Everybody is trying to do the virtual performance and ask for money through PayPal or Venmo or or you know and you know everyone, all the musicians have to figure out a way to bring some income in and the virtual live performance, live stream performance is one venue. It's a part of a bigger question. I, I do think that just sticking with the, the production side of things and recording, now recording has been stretched into live stream performance. So it's those two worlds are really coming together more. And I think there's gonna be a thing of where people are gonna do more home uh, studio recording and then they're gonna take that recording and they're gonna do their virtual, you know, their live stream with something they've recorded at home and, and, and they are performing live over top of what they've recorded at home and they're creating a new animal now, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's one thing that I think is good that people are gonna get more imaginative in doing that. You know, um, in the beginning when this first started happening, what was a rude awakening for a lot of musicians was that you cannot connect up online live in real time and play in sync together, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. Even though we all might be Zooming and we're all seeing each other, the sound has a delay because it has to go from Kansas City to New York. There's a delay. Right. So that, that means that if you've got your headphones on, 
when you see that person singing or you see that drummer hitting the drum, it is not in sync. And that's tough. That's very tough. One of my professors earlier this week challenged us to all count at the same time and like keep tempo with each other. And it was impossible. It was, no, it's not happening. Even, you know, even, and and the thing that really slows it down is the video. Mm -hmm. Audio travels much faster. Now, a sound travels much faster. So even if you did not visually look at each other, but you have headphones on and you're all hearing each other, you still cannot play together in sync because you are playing and it's sending it to someone in uh, New Orleans and someone in uh, you know Chicago is playing, sending it to you. And it's not all traveling at the exact same time and even if it's just a few milliseconds, I mean, the, the ear is amazing. The human ear is amazing. You can hear, if you're, if you're attuned to it, you can tell beyond five milliseconds. You can hear the, the lapse of five or 10. 25 milliseconds is very discernible. Mm. And that's just about how much time it takes to send a sound from one city to another. Yeah. So that was the rude awakening because musicians got excited in the beginning. Oh, let's just all play together and record together, but it, it won't work. So everybody got smart and figured it out. And what they would do is they would put a click track down. Here's the tempo. I'm gonna play my part to this tempo. And then I'm gonna email you that part. And then you can put your part overdub your part onto that. And then we assemble it all in Pro Tools or whatever software we're using, and we have a finished production, but it does not happen in real time. The music industry landscape has completely transformed during the coronavirus pandemic. Music industry professionals around the world are trying to figure out the safest ways to open venues and book live performances. The main question is, how are we going to get back to where the industry was previously, and will we even get there? Thank you for listening. Don't forget to catch our other podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, and more. Make sure to follow us on social by visiting our Facebook and Instagram accounts at SMU Hello Hilltop, where you can find behind-the-scenes info and upcoming podcasts. Until next time, we'll see you on the hilltop.